Brooklyn. Welcome to Inclusive Stories, where we tell stories that matter and try to create a more inclusive world one story at a time. Today, I am extremely excited to welcome Christine to the podcast. Hi, Christine. Hi. Hi. Um, Christine, where are you joining us from for our viewers that do not know? Yeah, I'm, I'm joining you from Nashville, Tennessee. From the other side of the pond, really. <laughs> That's um, right. Um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And um, I would like to, you know, just get to know you a little bit. Um, if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, sure. Um, I am a mom of four. Um, my oldest is 19 and my youngest is 11. Um, so I've been doing this for a little while and, um, I'm, uh, I'm trained as an educator. So I'm a, I've been a teacher on and off for over 25 years. Um, I'm a mindfulness instructor and I'm also a parent coach. So I've, I've kind of found my way through some of the bumps and bruises of my own parenting, um, hmm. to find a way to go and, and help parents. And that's what drew me to you was that um, all of these uh, stories of having people to feel include, included, I think is really important because mm -hmm. um, there was, while I am trained as an educator, there was a lot of um, hardship in my parenting and loneliness. And you kind of think, oh, well, you're trained as an educator, you're going to know all these things to do as a parent. And um, it's, Running a classroom is very different than running than running your family and connecting with your children. Uh, can I can only imagine, and I'm really curious to dive into that. Um, can you just just a little bit? I'm sure we're going to talk about this later on, but just a little bit. Can you tell us how you balance your role um, now with all of the experience under your belt? How do you balance your role as a parent and an educator? I think, you know, I think balance is kind of elusive to all of us, right? It's one of those words we all seek to achieve, but mm. how often do we actually maintain it? Um, I think we, we, have, we have a tendency to have those ebbs and flows. And so um, that's why I've been in and out of the classroom multiple times over my 25 years of as an educator, um, mm. because there are times that it me being a full-time teacher doesn't work um, with with where my family and my children are. And so um, right now, <laughs> right now I am working about 30 hours a week yeah. as an educator. And, um, and that seems to be a really good balance for us. Um, still trying to make that time to be able to connect with each yeah. of the children in a way that feels right for them. Yeah. Isn't that interesting, though? I find this a very universal thing where, you know, finding that nice balance of being able to say, like, you know, I'm pursuing something, my passion, my career, whatever that is, and then I'm there, I'm present for my children. It's a constant juggle, at least for me. It is an extreme, like, juggle. I have been a career person all of my life. And when I had my, I have a four-year-old and a five-year-old, and when I first had them, like, I had the illusions of being, oh, no, yes, I can, of course I can do it all. Like, you know, like, I can. Now, five years down the line, I am extremely in awe of, you know, all parents that continue to do it all. It is, it is a struggle. It is a struggle. Okay. Um, can we talk a little bit about 
some of the challenges. You say now what thirty hours a week, um, and still trying to kind of find like that sweet sport um, for yourself and your family. Can I take you back a little bit to some of the challenges you faced early on as a parent and an educator, and how you over- overcame them to get to where you are at, the, at this point? Yeah, absolutely. So when my my oldest two were born, we lived in my hometown. So we were less than five miles away from my parents. And we had the option of grandparent help. Um, mm. And and they, they, they seemed to help out a lot early on. And then they, they kind of backed off. Um, not too, not too long into it. Um, but still they were present. And if I needed to go to the dentist, it was great to be able to call them and be like, Hey, can you take the kids? I need to go to the dentist. Um, then my husband and I, we moved across the country to, um, California. So we lived, um, in Los Angeles for 15 years and we didn't have any family there. Hmm. And so that was a very different experience. So that was kind of the first hardship I would say was the being alone, Mm -hmm. um, where it's just my husband and myself. So the great thing about it is we only had us, we had to just rely on us. The hard thing about it was you had to form friendships that felt like family and that takes time. And so initially that was, that was really hard. Um, and then we went on to, um, to have two children out in California as well. So we have a total of four. Um, and my oldest was diagnosed with type one diabetes, uh, about two weeks before my youngest turned one. And, um, so that was really scary and really Mm. hard because, um, you never want to hear the doctors say to you, um, we'll know if he's going to make it in the next 24 hours. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? Um, we really were blindsided by it. We had Mm. no idea. I was like, I thought we were taking him in for the flu. And it turned out that, um, that he was basically going into a diabetic coma. Um, so, so I would say that was the first, I feel like that's kind of like the first series of derailment Mm. in my parenting. Um, because when you, when you have a child diagnosed with a a chronic illness, you kind of go into, or at least I did, I went into like caretaker mode, Mm. which means I do everything for and around and because of him. Um, and, and in that, so for example, I, I changed his diet, right? Because that's what they tell you, like limit, limit carbs, limit sugar. Um, you're going to be able to manage the diabetes better. Well, what I didn't take into consideration was that he was a nine-year-old boy and he really wanted the birthday cake. Of course he did. Right. Well, yes, of course. Well, like in reflection, that sounds so normal and absolute and, and understanding. But at the time I was like, yeah, but you don't understand what that means for him, for his longevity of life, Mm -hmm. for me not getting sleep tonight, for like all of these things, um, because I would have to get up and be his pancreas and check his blood sugar and all of that. And, um, that caused him to resent me. And some of the things that I was trying to control. Yeah. And and that was hard. And then along the way, also, he was diagnosed with ADHD Mm. and, um, and also on the spectrum. So, um, that's all, that's all part of it, but, um, yeah, so it can be hard. It is, it is really, well, 
what you said struck me about when you get like a diagnosis like that. Like my my sons are on the spectrum. Um, you go automatically into like fix it caretaker mode. Like I I did. I at, at the point where I got the diagnosis, obviously I had done a lot of research as to what was wrong. It started with speech delay, and then I went into the rabbit hole of you know ASD. Uh, by the time we got the diagnosis, I was a little bit versed. I will not say fully versed. But even at that, I still went into fixed mode, theatrical mode, trying to control everything and all things around my child um, at the time. So I totally get what you're saying. And and I have to, I have to confess, I still feel like I'm in that space. Even now, <laughs> down the line, yeah. I still feel I find myself looking for the next best like um um literature resources and all that which is actually okay right like we need to continue learning about this um absolutely my my question to you is have you gotten out of that like initial critical trying to kind of like manage everything and all that how did you get out of that and you know how did you manage your relationship with your with your child yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, I'm out of it, mostly because he's a sophomore in college, so he doesn't live here full-time anymore. <laughs> and so so that, that kind of happened naturally. But he, but as he became a teenager, he started, you know, children don't very often tell you directly with their words what they want or what they don't want, yeah. but they will tell you with their actions. Hmm. And so he he told me with his actions and just basically became, um, I don't want to say a problem child, but mm. he became very resistant to a lot of things in our relationship. And part of that was because he was resenting the things that I was putting on him. Right. And eventually I got to him, I got to have the conversation with him and he was like, I want to eat the sugar mom. And I was like, okay, this is unhealthy food practices, right? This is what leads people to like anorexia and bulimia mm. and like mm. other food um, related issues. Um, although I don't think he was headed that way. I think he was headed the opposite of like right. binging sugar in his bedroom. Um, and that's, that's an unhealthy behavior as well. And so yeah. I kind of picked up on that and was like, okay, this is not healthy either. Let's find a better balance. So we went and we met with his doctor and had a different conversation. But then as long as, you know, as it went along, you know, type one diabetes, you know, you have to test your blood sugar all yeah. the time. Sometimes you're testing your blood sugar 27 times a day and sometimes you test it six. Um, but, uh, it was because I was kind of all up in his space. Like, right. did you, those were always the questions I was asking. What's your blood sugar? Have you tested your blood sugar? Did you do enough insulin for this? Did you check the carb count? Um, how are you feeling? And it was, our relationship became transactional. Hmm. It was me asking about the physical parts of his illness rather than seeing him. Right. And I, and, and it, I mean, it was, he was probably 16 when I, when we had like a, a big blowout and it was like, oh, wait, how did I get this far off track? This isn't, this isn't where I intended to be with my parenting. This isn't intended where, where I intended to be with my relationship with my child. Mm -hmm. um, and while I feel like I am 
in caretaker mode and doing all these really great things to keep them alive because mm-hmm. now it takes more to keep them alive. I am missing the whole person that's standing in front of me. I'm missing all these amazing moments with him where we could have had mm. these amazing opportunities. Um, and I, it, it basically it came down to a big blow up, like a big argument. Can I tell you what the argument was about? Nope, not really. But I just, I remember the moment of being yeah. like, whoa, yeah. we need, something different needs to happen here. A light bulb moment. Yeah. It was, it was. And unfortunately it was, you know, he was 16 when that happened. But I will oh, say wow. it's never too late to mend those relationships. And your child yeah. is always, they're wanting that. They're wanting yeah. that. And, and it really takes a shift in, in, in you. Right, because the relationship is not on them. We're the ones with the with the fully developed brain, and we're the ones that are supposed Correct. to know better emotionally. And so we have to take that ownership. And it wasn't until I was able to fully reflect on what I was doing and my role in it that I could make a change. Which can be extremely difficult, especially if you are still in that space of I can fix. It. I am mom. I know everything. Um, as we exactly. <laughs> I think I was in that, like, but I'm mom. I'm always right. Um, yeah. I couldn't possibly be wrong here. It's clearly yeah. your fault. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> clearly. Oh, okay. Well, um, it, I'm really, really interested in knowing what your journey to diagnosis was for ASD and HAD. So um, you first yeah. got a diagnosis for is diabetes, and then um, HAD and ASD came along. Can you walk us through how that was for you and how you were able to navigate all three, like, you know, extremely serious diagnoses? Yeah, absolutely. So he, I actually knew when he was 18 months old. I suspected. Right? Don't we all? <laughs> yeah, he was, he was very young, and I was Ooh. like, and then I could tell, like, there was just some social awkwardnesses about him when he was really little. Um, it was, a, my husband and I would always comment, you know, my husband and I are both teachers. So, um, but I, you know, I would just watch and then, you know, I think, I think there's a part of you that's in denial, right? Oh, yeah. And then you're like, well, no, no, no. Look at in these moments, he's totally fine. And then <laughs> in other moments you're like, uh, I don't, yeah. Yeah. I'm not so confident about that thought. And so you know, there were times he, he would make friends really quickly, um, on the playground and, but he had a hard time maintaining friendships. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like at school every year he had a new group of friends and that was, I was like, mm, this is curious. Um, he ended up being fine. I like, I, I kind of, um, suspected and knew how he did better if he knew the routine or if he knew what was coming. And so I would always, I kind of set him up, right? Like to make things a little easier for him at home in a way, because I, I suspected, um, but it wasn't until he was in high school and we wanted some accommodations and they said, well, you don't have a plan. So we had to take him to get a, it's called an ed psych eval. And so they do this whole it takes, it takes like four weeks to do this evaluation. And so they'll do an academic evaluation component just to see his IQ. Mm -hmm. And then they do an emotional evaluation and they they do all these other things. Um, 
he was showing very strong signs of it at that point. Um, and some of it was because I think over the years I had taken him to OT, occupational therapy, mm-hmm. because he didn't want me to cut his fingernails. And he was 10 and rolling around on the bathroom floor screaming. And I was like, this isn't normal. Yeah. And so I took him to OT or, you know, I would take him to like a therapist And so he had lots of these other things. And finally, by the time we did this, I think he really thought there was something wrong with him. Um, And it was probably actually a relief to have the diagnosis. But that was the doctor that diagnosed the ADHD and the the ASD spectrum. Um, He said he's very high functioning, you know, like. But he, but he has components, and Mm. from that, because he's a voracious reader, Mm. he. he actually read up and I encouraged him to, I bought some books on it for him. Um, he read up on his own um, ways that his brain and, and, and body work. And um, it's actually been a really good thing for him. It's been really empowering. That is fantastic. It, it, I always find it really, really encouraging when I hear stories like this about um um, children that eventually kind of understand their diagnosis themselves. I'm praying and hoping at some point down the line, like my sons will be able to have that comprehension too. Um, so what you, you mentioned, you obviously got the diagnosis later on. Looking back now, did you have any kind of, uh, do you ever have that like, Maybe, you know, it, it could have been better for him if he had any kind of earlier interventions and things like that. Could you share that? Yeah, absolutely. I think probably an earlier intervention would have been great, not necessarily because he needed services or, you know, anything like that, although maybe it would have helped us with um, uh, getting like some mental health, like a therapist at an earlier age. But I think the biggest thing would have been, um, I think my, with, with, with the diagnosis, my husband and I might have been a little bit more understanding or considerate in certain situations yeah. because because there was that like, um, I think he is. And then we were like, no, 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 he's not. Like, look at this. And then we'd be like, no, no, he definitely is. And then we're like, oh, well, but no. then he's not. And And I think that was some of our misunderstanding of autism because, like I said, we're both teachers. And it's a lot easier to see when it's not your own child. So we see kids in the classroom all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And and we can see it when a child walks into our classroom. And and I I hate to say this, but educators do it all the time, even though technically they're not supposed to diagnose, they diagnose in their head, right? And Mm -hmm. they go, well, that kid's on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there were teachers that were thinking that about my son. Um, But, you know, sometimes when you live with it, you can't see all of it. But yet I knew there were things that were harder or different and not quote unquote normal, right? Like I would talk to my mom and she's like, no, no, that's normal for kids. I'm like, not to this extreme though, mom. Like she's Mm. like, no, that's that's normal. He'll grow out of it. Mm -hmm. And then when he didn't, I'm like, this is still not right. (laughs) Yes. Yes. He'll grow out of it. That is a phrase that you hear everywhere um it is it is interesting so you you mentioned um talking about how you would have been maybe a little bit more understanding or a little bit more patient with him if you had this knowledge which is you know which makes sense 
How does this kind of like factoring into um, establishing connections with your with your child, especially now on the other side, knowing this? Like, how do you think you navigated establishing connection with your child? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it all changed definitely when you have sixteen. Interestingly enough, like we got the diagnosis right. Uh, we had to have a Zoom meeting with his ed psych therapist because um, the world had just shut down with COVID, oh, right? Wow. So, yes. and that was that was the first few days of the pandemic, um, and so I, I, and in fact, honestly, like the um, the pandemic was a blessing for him mm. because social situations are exhausting for him as much as he likes them and wants them. They are exhausting for him and school, like the understanding that social nuances. And so he got a break, so to speak, um, by being able to do his junior year of high school from home. Mm. And so I think that actually helped him to be a lot more successful in a way that uh, junior wow. year of high school is traditionally here and known to be a, a pretty hard school year. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think that really helped him. Um, that being said, once they kind of started going back and getting together with friends and hanging out and all that stuff, I, I can notice his, um, anxiety rising. And that's when our relationship really kind of fell apart again. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's kind of like the ebbs and the flows. And as I look back, I can see there's definitely, um, tendencies and mm-hmm. or patterns, um, of when he would get, um, upset or overwhelmed. And it's like, it always felt like school started the end of August. And by the middle of October, he was starting to feel that, uh, mm-hmm. like he'd, he'd maxed out his, um, capacity for other people. But, um, so I think some of that, just noticing some of those things are important, but how did that affect my relationship with him and building that? I mean, we really encouraged, um, a lot of family game time and, family trivia and he really would love that and he would come out for that and and hang out with us um but also recognizing that my relationship with him had to be more than just like hey i need you to take out the trash Mm. it was was more about and i found that like he liked to hang out in his bedroom and play video games and he didn't like it when people came in his room so he wouldn't like me to just come in and sit down on his bed and start a conversation that would actually he'd be really defensive So I wasn't going to get through that way. So what I had to do, which is hilarious now, but I had to invite him to go um, get a milkshake, which is funny because a few years before I wouldn't let him have sugar. So uh, (laughs) I would say, hey, I'm going to go get milkshakes. You want to come with me? And he'd be like, yeah. And so he'd get in the car and I found that the best way to communicate with him was when, as a teenager, when we're not making eye contact, right? But we can have a conversation. that is interesting. Well, making eye contact is really vulnerable (laughs) and oftentimes kids who are autistic don't like to make eye contact anyways. Yes. Uh, So if we're sitting in the car and he's sitting in the front seat and we're both facing forward, we talked about all sorts of stuff. Um, And he would open up about things. Plus also it got him out of the house and away from his siblings, um, which could also be intimidating. Um, And the other thing I would do with him is I would, um, I would invite him to help cook a meal with me once a week. So he was my, he was either my, he was either my sous chef or I was his sous chef. So, um, that was really helpful. And now he's actually an excellent cook, which is kind of awesome. Well, we he's, win. Not, he's not good at cleaning up after that, but he, but he's really good at cooking. <laughs> 
Well, it's still a win-win, I would say. And that oh, is, uh, that is really, really funny. Because when you mentioned about like sitting in the car and having him, you know, just just talking, you're meeting him where he's at. You're like yep. not give, having any expectations on how he yep. should be, um, yep. or you know how we sh- how you should parent. You're adapting your parenting strategy for your child. It doesn't mean that that will be like the same for other children. You adapt, and that is what. I think early on, I, I always say, and I don't know if you agree with me, your first child usually is your trial baby. I felt like that. Like there were a lot of things that I did with my first son now that I'm not doing with my, my younger son because obviously I had no experience, you know, raising a child and all that. Um, but having to understand early on how I needed to just remove my own expectations and just adapt to my child I think was one of the best connections to date that I I I can help foster and I'm still trying to learn like the different strategies that I can use so it would be really great if you can share aside from the lovely ones you've already shared yeah you know for like parents like you know that with neurodivergent children what are like the important things that they need to like put in place to establish connections with their with their child um and this is thinking about children that are not like prone to connecting in the, in the um, traditional way. Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, I think, you know, your child best, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to know what I, what I say that worked for my child may not work for your child. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest thing that you have to do is to really get in tune with your child. Um, like I said, I, I started to recognize like, tr- um, uh, uh, um, I just lost the word. Uh, the ebbs and flows of, uh, uh, well, yeah, you recognize triggers, but you recognize like certain times of the year, things would, mm-hmm. would kind of start to fall apart or mm-hmm. start to recognize um, certain situations are, are hard or challenging for your child. Obviously yes. that's not a time to go like, Hey, let's have a, <laughs> let's have a deep personal conversation when your yeah. child is feeling stressed. Nobody, nobody really wants to have a conversation with that. But what I found was that when my energy changed mm. around my son, oh yes, our relationship changed. And and I say my energy because my energy before was super caretaker. So I was kind of intense and like in his face. Mm. And I was also very transactional, right? Like talking about blood sugars, like, hey, did you finish your homework? Did you email this teacher? Like it was all none, it was all superficial questions in an attempt to connect, but it wasn't connecting at all. Um, mm-hmm. And so when I started to relax or soften our relationship and invite him in and get silly in the ways that felt good to him, um, that's when our relationship really changed and got better and, and more understanding. Um, I'd be curious to hear what he thinks about that. And, um, but but I'd be curious to to, to see what he thinks, but, but he definitely, um, is more open now. And, and I had to also release the idea that like the relationship has to be right for both of us, Mm -hmm. not just me. Um, and that there are things and times when he doesn't want to connect and it's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so like, for example, 
I know that he much prefers to communicate via text message versus a phone call. Um, and so I'll text him, but I also know that he might not respond to me that day. Mm-hmm. It could be two or three days later and that's okay. okay. Um, but, but also then when he calls me on the phone, that means he's ready to talk and he'll talk for like an hour. It's funny. <laughs> well, my husband will hang up and he will be like, Whoa, he was so chatty. <laughs> Um, but just kind of, I, I think as parents, you know, when we have that newborn baby, the reason we love babies is because they're so full of hope and possibility and whose hope and possibility are they full of ours, right? There are expectations that we're like, oh my gosh, you're going to be amazing. You're going to be an artist. You're going to be an engineer. You're going to, you're going to change the world. Well, then as they grow, we start to lose some of those expectations because their true person starts to shine through. Right. Mm -hmm. And we have to let go of those. And as parents, sometimes we don't, and we hold a little Mm -hmm. too tight to some of those, but you're going to be an NFL football star or whatever, whatever. Um, And and we put some of those like expectations on them of what we thought our child was going to be. And it's just not necessarily true. Yeah. I'm not fair. And, I'm not fair on the children. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not fair to them because we've already determined who they're going to be. And so we have to kind of release that a little bit yeah. and allow them to be who they are. And when you really tune into who they are and not into who you want your parenting experience to be, you yeah. tune into who they are, um, you'll find easier ways to connect with them. But, uh, you know, Great examples are going for walks, going to get milkshakes in the car, (laughs) cooking together, um, playing card games together. Um, Some children maybe are nonverbal. Maybe you sit and watch a movie together. Maybe you engage in their video game. I mean, my son was huge into video games and I sat down one time with him and I was like, teach me how to play. Like these are like... At, you know, I would love to, like, when, when can we do that? Show me how to do your game. Um, I think those are all like ways that have worked for us. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what, what that looks no, like for you. Yeah, no, I can say the same, even though my children are younger. Um, I, and this is very recently for me, it used to be a struggle when my son's came back from school because I was always like obviously when they come from school they're filthy dirty they should not be but that's the way it is the first thing I want to do is give them a bath wash up all the grime but that's not what they want to do my son just wants to like now I'm I'm beginning to realize they compress uh he's been in school all day with all of the sensory overload and all of that stuff and here I am welcoming him home with a snack and a bath whilst he probably just wants to go under a duvet cover and cover his head and, and all that. It took a while, and I, but in the last couple of weeks, I've just devised a different approach. Like, I will lay down a sensory, I have a sensory tent in the bedrooms where I've laid down, like, a space for them to decompress their favorite sensory toys, everything in there for them. And I will show him, I'm like, this is where you're going to go. Well, can we just have a bath first? And then we can go in here. Um, and that has worked. I also kind of guess that I'm not just controlling what he's doing right off the bath. Um, there is a plan and he's going to get to where he can relax. 
I want to be able to get to the space where I'm like, you know what, go under the duvet with your dirty self. I'm not there yet. But <laughs> I'm just like really relieved that I'm I'm gradually letting go of my expectations on how my child should be. You should come home, you should have a bath, you should have dinner, and then you should go play. Not, most children are not wired that way. They, are, they just want to decompress. They probably don't even want to talk to mommy. They probably don't even want to hold my hand or whatever it is, even though I've missed them all day. Um, so I totally get what you're saying, that you have to meet your child where they are and adjust and adapt to, you know, what your child needs when they need it. Well, also, also something to consider. Um, I always, um, are you familiar with the author Mo Willems? He wrote, no. uh, don't let the pigeon drive the bus and, uh, the elephant and piggy series. I'm, I'm not sure if you have those books over there, but they're great for kids. And he's a, I always thought his comment was interesting. And he said, you know, being a kid sucks. Like it, it's the worst thing ever. And you know, everybody's reaction is always like, what? Like being a kid's great. And he's like, no, it's terrible because all day long you have these people bigger than you telling what you, what you have to do. And, and I always try to keep that in mind of like, how much control does my child have in this situation? And, and yeah, when they go to school, they, they have to, you know, now we know about autism and masking, but they have to put on a mask all day as best Mm -hmm. they can try to fit in with their peers, but also to do what their, their teachers tell them to do. Mm -hmm. They're told what to do all day. Mm -hmm. They come home it's you. They don't have to mask with you. It all comes off and with it, big emotions oftentimes, and there can be meltdowns. Um, some things that helped my son, um, he really enjoyed being brushed. Um, I don't know if you've heard of brushing at all, but um, you take, uh, we took a really soft brush and you can, you can buy them on Amazon. But um, I had some leftover from when the kids were babies that they gave me in the hospital and I had a really soft like plastic bristle. And he, uh, I visualized it and talked to him about it as like brushing off all the day's stresses oh. and we would brush his arms and we'd brush his legs. And that was really, um, re-regulating for him. Yeah. Um, and at the time there weren't things as weighted blankets and that kind of thing. Uh-huh. So I filled Ziploc bags full of dried beans. Oh, wow. And- I would put him on his shoulder or I put him on like lay down on the, on your stomach and we'd put him on his back and he would, he would kind of decompress that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, those were things that were really helpful for him, which is interesting because he really doesn't like to be touched, but he needed that pressure. deep, mm. he needed the deep pressure. Like he doesn't want like a light touch. Yeah. He wants deep touch. Um, yeah. and actually we got him into playing, um, American football and that compression, uh-huh. really um helped him to uh to be better i guess i don't know like it was it was great that, for that him those were those were things that, well for him. that that is interesting I, yeah i i find that those very similar things like you know pressure and all of that weighted stuff they they really helped my my son to both of them actually to kind of directly um can can I talk about a little bit about your other children? How has the relationship been like um, navigating your child with the diagnosis and your children that do not have a diagnosis? How has that been um, with connecting with all of your children? 
Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I, I used to joke that I spend 98% of my time on my oldest and 2% on the other three divided, um, which uh, is sad, really. But I recognized it, that how much time I spent on them um, or on on him. I, I do think that probably because I spent so much time on him that actually I had little, I had better interactions with my younger kids because they were more intentional and more short. Right. So they'd only get 20 minutes of my time, but they were intentional moments Mm -hmm. um, where we would play a game or I used to love to do um, a lot of sensory play. Uh, We used to live in Southern California. So I'd always have like a, a sensory table outside and I don't know, I'd put Orbeez in there with, with ice cubes or we would play in the sand or we would play, um, Ooblick, which is cornstarch and water. And that was a lot of fun. Um, so I think, I think they actually were fine with it. <laughs> um, but I, but I, I definitely had to be more aware. And there was a time where we would try to do date nights with our kids. Mm-hmm. So we would try to take them all out individually, like once a month. Or every, we would do two one month and two the other month, um, where we would, we would take them out either for lunch or for dinner or for breakfast, like one, like one outing. Um, and it would be just the two of us. And they really, really liked that. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what is the relationship like now? Your older son is out of the house. You have three younger son, children at home, right? What yes. what is that connection like now with your older son? Also, is that still the same ratio where you are spending a lot more time worrying about him, or has that changed and shifted for you? No, that really changed. Um, like after he was sixteen, when we kind of had that big blow up, and um, I needed to step back, and he was like, "Look, I need to start taking care of my own diabetes because I'm going off to college," and I was <laughs> like okay, here are the parameters that I'm comfortable with. And like, what are the parameters you're comfortable with? And so we kind of sat down and talked and I was like, as long as your A1C number is in a reasonable range, I'll totally back off. And so we did that. Um, and, um, so I, uh, the other kids though, um, uh, so I, so no, I don't still spend a lot of time on my college student, um, it's it's actually gone to the opposite extreme where I spend very little time uh, and 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 maybe sometimes too little. So but um, but the other kids, I feel like, are, are reaping the rewards of that, although maybe they don't want it now. Maybe they don't want my attention. I don't know. Well, that is well done. Well done to you. I, I always find it really, really hopeful when I speak to parents that have, you know, the children are out of the house and and it gives me a lot of hope as to what could be you know in the future as you mentioned earlier and you you talked about like the awesome dreams that we have as parents like you never think about like having a child on the spectrum or ADHD or whatever diagnosis it is you always have the hopes of having your child be the best that it could be and there's nothing wrong in you know acknowledging that that is probably going to change in what that looks like it doesn't mean it's not going to happen as you can clearly see with your with your son going off to college and being independent and living his life, you know, it doesn't mean it's a, you know, death sentence. It just means like you, you're thinking about things in a different way and you're approaching things and how you're parenting your child in a different way, which is absolutely okay. So I'm always really excited when I speak to parents like yourself and educators. Uh, so I always talk to parents and I even talk to, I talk to kids about this because I, I also work with kids on mindfulness. Um, I think 
generally speaking, kids get the message that you're only smart if you're smart in English, math, Hmm. science, or history. And that's just not true. And I really talk to kids about the ways they are smart. And I talk to parents about acknowledging, like, we are all here with a gift. Maybe it doesn't look like the traditional gift. Maybe you're not going to do well in school. But that doesn't mean that you you aren't smart. And that doesn't mean that you aren't talented. Um, I mean, my my son, he's very intellectual. But does he like did he like traditional school? No, he hated it. Um, could he have gotten straight A's plus more with AP classes and all that other stuff? A hundred percent. And it would have been easy for him, but he hated it. So he didn't do well at it. Mm. And just because you're talented at it doesn't mean that you enjoy it and that yeah. you should pursue it. But you know what he really enjoyed? Art. Art for him was a way to process his emotions and process life. And he's wow. an amazing artist. He's at art school and he, loves it. He is thriving. And I think when we can release the fact of like, oh, you're not smart at math and rec- and really look at the other side of it is what areas are you smart in? Hmm. Maybe hmm. you're smart at being a good friend. Okay, cool. What can we do with that? Maybe you're really smart at um, thinking outside of the box. Awesome. Like we need people like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause not, not everybody. Maybe you're really mechanical. Well, they don't teach that in school. No, no. Yeah. Well, and, and keep in mind, school systems are in charge of mass education, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're educating the mass and they're giving them, I mean, school, I was, I, I remind parents too, like school, remember school is just supposed to be like a sampling mm-hmm. of subject areas so that you can have a general knowledge. So you can go out into the world and have conversations with people about these kind of things, but you don't have to be an expert at all of them. They're supposed to be a sampling. So you can go, Oh, I really am good at this. Or I really like this. I think I might like to pursue this as a career. Um, But also because of the mass education, there are people and children that are going to fall through the cracks. They aren't always going to know your child's weaknesses mm. or, or strengths. And in in that, it's okay. But you as a parent are going to have to go in and advocate for your kid. Now, there's a right way to advocate for your kid and there's a wrong way. Thanks. Unfortunately, right now, a lot of parents have gotten into advocating for their kid, meaning like getting angry and yelling and Trust me, these teachers love your child. They are doing the best they can. It is a it is a team effort, right? Mm-hmm. So you do have to bring the, your knowledge about your child with yeah. you to the table, but there's yeah. a way to handle it. And also know that they're going to see different things than mm. you. Like, like me, if a teacher had come to me when my son was a younger age and said, I think he's on the spectrum, you should get him tested. Um, I don't know if I would have accepted it that time mm-hmm. at that time because there were times that I accept uh, that I thought it was totally true and times that I yeah. didn't. And there also notice patterns. Like I feel yeah. like teachers over the years will kind of start to say the same thing. Your kind- kids kindergarten teacher, first grade, second grade, third grade, they might start to say, "Hey, have you considered having him tested?" Or, mm-hmm. "Hey, I noticed he's really unable to focus." Um, I feel like ADHD is always one of those that number yeah. of teachers have to say before parents go, 
all right, I'll get him tested. Mm-hmm. Um, and or her, you know, it could be it could be either. It could, it could go to both. I just I say him because my oldest yeah. is a him, so I, so I I default to that. But but it's I think it's really important to one advocate for your child, but to be open to some of the things that your child's teacher is saying. I absolutely one thousand percent agree agree with you, and and I I live this every single day. I think that you know the best decision I made is understanding that my children's teachers or school are um, advocates also, that I'm not the only one doing this. I'm, I'm working alongside them, hand in hand with them. And it's really benefited my children so much. I'm, I'm one to do a lot of research. I'm one to, I have, I have my information. I have, you know, the things that I understand and I share that you know um you know the we should be ready to walk hand in hand with the educators and be it's it's not we're not fighting against them like they they are molding and shaping our children for us you know so they are not the enemy um we should always just understand that we need to communicate what our children need so that they can help better support them Um, Thank you so much, Christine, for joining us today. It's been really, really great speaking with you. Can you, do you have like final notes and tips so you can just help share with some of our parents listening uh, in like, you know, we've talked about um, the best ways that you've connected with your child, the challenges, Um, just a parting word for our parents and how they can help support their child and connect with them throughout this process. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think the biggest thing for me has been taking care of me, right? Remembering <laughs> that I need to do self-care um, because otherwise that comes with burnout and extreme emotions for me, which doesn't help the relationship. And so if I can be in a place of calm, um, maybe that looks like I just take a shower. Maybe that looks like I drink water. Maybe that mm-hmm. looks like I have a salad for lunch, some form of self-care. And it can be little, it doesn't have to be a, a massage, although that would be nice. Um, but just remember that self-care benefits more than just you. Yes. Um, it benefits everybody in the family. And you're going to have stronger relationships with your children when you can do self-care. So some, for me, that even looks like just taking a breath and, mm-hmm. and pausing before I answer my child or, or just pausing before I go to do something with him and think like, is this what I think he would like right now? Um, and just, I, I think that has been really powerful and a game changer for our relationship. That is a- Great, great advice. And I find that that is the same for me too. Um, I'm less prone to be triggered myself when I'm taking care of myself, when I'm, I'm breathing. That's really great. Thank you so much, Christine. Um, can you tell our audience where they can find you on social media? Um, do you have a website you would like to share? Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm on Instagram at kristin.schmoke.parenting. I always say the hardest part is spelling my name. Um, so I'm going to put that on the screen and everyone can see that. And it will be in the description box. Perfect. And then I do have a website, which is just kristenschmoke.com. And so you can see all the things we're up to over there. And, um, and yeah, join, join, join the community. Cause I think yeah. it's, I think it's really important. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm also in the process of starting a podcast, um, 
it has not yet released, but my hope is, uh, well, it's going to be called The Parenting Village. And, nice. Uh, the, I like the premise that. Is, right? The premise is bringing together parents who are all experiencing things that may feel unique to them, mm-hmm. but really are not that unique. Yes. There's a lot yes. more people, you know, experiencing the same things. So yeah, it's fantastic. I look forward to seeing your podcast because we do like create villages for ourselves, don't we? Whether it's our family or friends or the community that we are in, we need our village to survive. Um, Absolutely. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Christine. And I will be hopefully seeing you soon. And um, yeah, following your story. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for inviting me on here. This was really, uh, it was an amazing conversation. I'm so glad to be a part of it. Thanks so much. Of course. Thank you, Christine. (laughs) 